And then the one other piece I'd add is it's kind of an interesting thing about markets is when the supply gets really thin in a market with enough volume in it, the price is a reflection of the average buyer and the average seller. Like in a market that's selling 1500 houses a month, the average buyer and the average seller set the price. When the market grinds down and there's no supply and very few transactions, what ends up happening is the market gets set by the most optimistic buyer. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I'm Ben Myers. I am here with the one, the only, Steve Cameron. It's 2022. We are back. A little bit of a hiatus, but we're back better than ever. We're not in your house. We're not in your backyard. We have to go back to Zoom. Omicron has uh, is hurting our podcast fun. But yes, we have some. We have some great news. A new year. And a new sponsor, my friend Greg, uh, Corey, that I played softball with for 15 years. He is with Kool-Aid Studios. So, and he reached out and said he wanted to uh, uh, sponsor our, our podcast. And, and uh, Greg is a great guy. He coached the softball team. He threw him in the lineup at number three in center field. So he's a smart guy. He knew, he knew where to put the top talent in the lineup. So I think he's only continued at his, at his new job. So uh, we got to shout out Greg. It's more than uh generous with his time and, and exactly exactly and so and so kool-aid is part of the plus group which is comprised of five distinct companies rn design srn architects salesfish sales software kool-aid studios and studio uno id offering services in marketing architecture interior design and real estate software the mission is simple revolutionize the real estate industry through efficiency, innovation, and quality while adding value to the client experience. For more information on the Plus Group or any of their five companies, visit theplusgroup.ca. Take it away, Steve. That was good, man. Wow. You practice that? Uh, no, no. I'm just an expert reader. <laughs> Real natural. Yeah, I read to my kids. I read to my kids at night, you know? So it just uh, comes natural. Speaking of naturals, <laughs> exactly. A natural born developer on the podcast today. Someone we're super excited to introduce the pod community to. He's a friend of the show. He just told us he's probably listened to every single one of the episodes. So kudos for you because that's more than I have listened to. His <laughs> guest is Daniel Brin from. Maine in Maine. He's a uh, he's a real experienced mixed-use developer. After graduating from Concordia University in 2007 with a finance degree, he began his, began his real estate career at CMHC. He entered development after seven years working as a management consultant focused on real estate. He has directly managed the successful entitlement of over 1.4 million square feet of mixed-use development. Daniel has extensive relationships in the design and engineering community and a deep understanding of development economics. We are thrilled to get just a little taste of what his expertise is all about. So let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Ben. Happy to be on. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's, let's dive into it. You're a Concordia graduate. You are a, a finance guy. And actually, I reached out to someone. I reached out to someone, the friend of the show uh, and, and future guest, Mr. Rob Spanier. And he described you as a finance wizard. So, so why did you decide to take you know, your finance wizardry and apply it to real estate? Why don't you walk us through your early career? Great. Thanks, Ben. Um, I think unlike many people in the business, uh, I did not set out originally intending on ending up in real estate and, uh, you know, don't come from a, a family with, uh, with deep history in it. But uh, I'd ended up working for CMHC actually while I was in college. Uh, and uh, I ended up at CMHC because my mom worked there, actually. And nice. uh, yeah, so while I was in school, I took an internship at CMHC working in their planning and research division, putting out this magazine that they publish every year that kind of covers all of the uh, housing issues, mostly written for like politicians and nonprofit people. And uh, I think week two of my internship while I was in business school, the person that I was working for who was running the project resigned and left. And uh, so I was left reporting to her boss who had like 120 direct reports and had you know, not a lot of time to uh, deal with me or the project. And he, you know, I came into his office after my boss resigned and he sort of said, you know, just figure it out. So uh, that's what I did. And uh, that was a fun job. I got to go around to all of the uh, policy research experts in CMHC, of which there are many, and sit and basically talk to them about what was happening and important in Canadian housing across a number of different subjects. And then basically we put together this magazine every year. Uh, you know, I managed to limit the number of typos sufficiently that after I finished that first internship, they invited me back to put the magazine out a few subsequent years, which I did. Then I was uh, wrapping up business school at that point and uh, was pretty firm on a path to go into banking or go uh, private equity and didn't really have any particular interest in ending up in real estate. And uh, I ended up applying for a job that I saw on Craigslist. And uh, yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a true story. And went in for an interview and, um, and really liked the people that I interviewed with. Uh, at the same time, I was in negotiations with one of the big five banks to move to Toronto. I was living in Montreal at the time to move to Toronto and work for them. And, uh, you know, I reflected on it, decided I didn't want to wear a suit and tie to work every day and that the work looked interesting. And so I took the plunge. So I spent the next seven years as a consultant in the real estate business, working for a combination of public and private sector clients, mainly advising them on how to realize mixed use projects. So, you know, typical kind of projects there were let's say a rust belt city with a downtown full of vacant buildings and crime problems and that sort of thing. And, you know, we would come in, I think there were a lot of people in the space who had, let's say design and physical solutions, to these problems. So, you know, lots of urban planners who can tell you how to, you know, reduce the width of the traffic lanes and put in nicer landscaping. And, you know, my scope was typically kind of everything outside of that. So how do you bring the capital? How do you bring the human capital? How do you sort of phase investments to realize the goal that you have for it? And then also lots of private sector clients. So these are 
uh, let's say home builders who have a piece of land that they now want to do a big mixed use project on, uh, resort owners who want to build like a ski village, that kind of thing. It was those types of clients. So, um, I think uh, consulting was a great place to start in the business because you do tons of projects, you know, in seven years, I, you know, I, I probably should have done the count before I was on here today, but you know, you work on dozens and dozens of projects. So you get the breadth of experience of looking at lots of different situations much faster than when you're a developer, because you know, a developer, t- a development of the type we do, you know, five years is a pretty quick turnaround on them. So by definition, you end up seeing a lot fewer deals. In 2012, I was on a panel at the Real Estate Forum talking about retail, urban retail, you know, where things were going. And uh, the my now business partner in Maine and Maine was in the audience and uh, introduced himself after the uh, after I had finished my speech. Eight months later, after a whole lot of time spent together, uh, I left and joined Maine and Maine. So this is 2013. And uh, the rest is history, as they would say, I guess, what uh, going on nine years later, still at it. Wow. Wow. Two, two interesting things there. Number one, I got to ask, were you on Craigslist? Like, were you looking for like used tires, maybe? Or like a, <laughs> a, a mattress, you know? Maybe an Xbox, a used Xbox, and then happened to say, hey, maybe I'll go through job postings? Or was it a specific, <laughs> like, let's get Craigslist for the job postings? I had, I had set up alerts for, uh, I had set up alerts for everything. And, um, I had, uh, before I graduated school, I had started a few companies and, um, one of them was selling, uh, ad space on the side of delivery trucks. And then I also set up a company, uh, tutoring MBA students and, um, that was particularly helpful in my job search afterwards. And uh, so I had a fair bit of options about what to do, but I'm just a, I'm a, I guess maybe somewhat neurotic person. So I set up alerts on, uh, on uh, Craigslist at the time. And so it would just push me job postings to a set of parameters and it hit my desk and you know, why not? There you go. Interesting. So you were, um, so, so tell us a bit, maybe, maybe about your, one of your favorite projects at, it was live, work, learn, play, right? Where you were, you were at, maybe you can give us a, uh, one that maybe stuck out to you. Oh, that's interesting. There are, you know, the projects are like your children, you know, you, uh, you're supposed to love them all equally, but, um, <laughs> I would say, um, so we worked in a city called Rockford, Illinois, which is a, a Rustveld city outside of Chicago. And um, there we did a lot of work with them and helped them launch a farmer's market and a revitalization scheme focused on a very particular area of the downtown. And uh, I think that one, uh, you know, I mentioned that one, you know, the people in the community are fantastic. I really enjoyed doing the work, all of those things. But uh, also because uh, a few years after, uh, I guess it'd be more than a few years, probably about five years after we finished that mandate, my wife and I were in Chicago on vacation and we drove the hour and change out to Rockford to go visit some of the people we had worked with. And we went out the day they were holding the farmer's market and the downtown, which every other time I had been through it was derelict. You know, you'd see five people if you were lucky sort of thing was packed. There were several thousand people at the farmer's market, a whole bunch of the vacant retail space that had been there when we were working there had filled in you know, the thing had really started to pick up some momentum. And, uh, you know, one of the things about cities is they're, you know, they're 
a, they're a flywheel that either spins in the right direction or the wrong direction. And uh, I think we played a small part in getting that flywheel moving in the right direction, which is uh, something I'm very proud of. That's awesome. Steve-O, you wanted to take the next one? Yeah, I wanted to talk about a little bit, uh, another interesting point that you mentioned there. And, you know, we're, we're back on Zoom and locked back down and everyone is talking about being at home and, and what the future of the world is going to look like. But you're at a, a real estate forum. You're speaking on a panel and and you uh, you got uh, paired up with Rick that, that came up to you and said, hey, let's chat. So tell us a little bit about what he said and uh, how that uh, partnership uh, came to be. Well, I think, uh, you know, as is often the case in life, uh, luck plays a huge part in it. So we were up on a panel about what was happening in urban retail. And the, I'd say the essence of what I was saying up on stage is, you know, look, you can see the towers coming up in the core now with all these new office and condo towers. You know, there's a lot more coming to them. And if you add tens of thousands of new people to a neighborhood with a relatively fixed supply of retail inventory, the natural process is you're going to see big run-ups in the rents. It's going to be golden days for retail landlords who know what they're doing in these, in these prime urban locations. And that was at a point, you know, downtown Toronto had successful retail for sure. Um, but, you know, net rents certainly ran up very heavily in the years that followed. And the, the lucky piece of it was that, uh, so Rick Eiffelis, the founder of Maine and Maine, had founded with Dory Siegel, Maine and Maine, on the very on this very premise that there was a mispricing of retail assets in the core, and that there was going to be a good investment opportunity in that space. So you know, I think it was uh, you know selling to get the job. I largely did by uh, you know being up there saying what Maine and Maine already uh, believed in their bones. So that made the uh, that made the process a fair bit easier. And then Rick and I spent a fair bit of time getting to know each other. I was an equity partner in my previous job and lived in Montreal and quite liked living there. So I was certainly only going to move, make career moves for uh, a job that I was fairly confident that I was going to enjoy and going to be successful at. So Rick and I spent a long time getting to know each other. We spent time driving around the city, looking at sites, talking about real estate, talking about you know the direction of the company, all those things. So I would say we uh, we both put our due diligence in. How long now have you been there, and and what's your current role, and what do you do? Yeah, so it's uh, it's been since 2013. So I guess that'll be uh, I guess that'll be nine years, uh, March of this year, and. Uh, I'd say my primary role in the company is uh, is really focused on the development side of the business. So uh, I do do a lot of work on the acquisition side from an underwriting standpoint, from looking at sites. But uh, one of my business partners in the company is the point person with the brokers, run the paper on the acquisition, that kind of thing. So I spend a fair bit of time on the acquisition piece. Once we've waved on a site and we're working it from a development side, then it's my baby effectively all the way through to substantial completion. So we've got a great team of people here and that's the typical process of getting through your entitlement process and then actually getting the buildings constructed. 
Interesting. So I'm, you know, I, you know, as you know, I'm a, I'm a residential guy. You guys are doing some residential, but you're in Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto. Maybe give us a little uh, synopsis, if you will, of what's happening in each of those markets from kind of your perspective of uh, kind of flying in and out of them, or as you mentioned, driving in and out of them <laughs> during COVID. Um, so uh, the main focus of Maine and Maine now, like the, the core of our program these days is building purpose-built rental. So almost all of our projects are mixed use. So we do do a fair bit of retail and we continue to use our expertise in that domain. But I think what, um, so Maine and Maine, when I joined, had a very retail focus to it. Like we would not buy a site if we didn't think it was a fantastic retail site. And now we... We have shifted our um, we've shifted our focus more to the residential side, and that kind of happened by happenstance. We we built a uh, we built a project in Ottawa that we constructed in 2016 into 2017, and then uh, subsequently sold in 2018. And that was a site where you know we bought it because we wanted to do the retail, but we had all this density on top of it. And uh, we needed to monetize the density. The project scale was one that our board was comfortable with. So we, uh, so we built that one out. And uh, that one was a real home run for us. We were seeing, you know, one of the things about Maine and Maine is we keep a pretty hard focus on buying in what we believe are very high quality urban sites, buying in sites where we think they have decades of runway to them. And one nice thing about building purpose-built rental is you remain exposed to the upside of the location of your real estate for as long as you hold the building. As contrasted with when you build condo where, you know, the, the day you sold your last unit, any revenue upside in the property is going to the, uh, you know, the people who bought the units and not yourself. So um, where we are, as you correctly mentioned, we're in Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. I think all three markets have... You know, some similarities and certainly some notable differences. You know, I think the uh, the sort of return to core in all of those markets that's been underway since, you know, the mid-aughts is still strong in all those markets. So all three markets are places where, you know, the downtowns of the cities are doing better than they ever have. I mean, COVID notwithstanding. Um and uh, very, very different uh, economics of the deals. You know, Toronto is a very, very high cost structure market, uh, certainly thinner returns, um, seemingly endless pools of capital chasing every opportunity. Ottawa is certainly has a more favorable cost structure to doing what we do than, uh, than either Toronto or Montreal. We think it's a very robust market. The city has had tremendous population growth over the last three, four years. The economy is super strong in Ottawa. So, um, you know, we like Ottawa a lot. We've, that's been a big focus of ours over the last two, three years. Uh, Montreal, we have, uh, we have a couple projects there, uh, none of which were really uh, out publicly announced on yet. And, um, you know, it's an interesting market. The uh, Our timing was, uh, if you want to come into the market, was challenging in Montreal. You know, the land, Montreal for a very long time was a pretty manageable market from a, from a land standpoint. You know, it's not too far past, too far back in history that you could buy great sites for 80 bucks a foot buildable in Montreal. 
And also, it's not that far back in history where you could build in Montreal with almost no fees from the municipality. Like you'd have to pay sales tax on completed units, that kind of thing. You'd have to pay building permit fees, that kind of thing. But very, very low cost structure in terms of development charges, that, that type of thing. Uh, I guess we'd be a couple years ago now, the city of Montreal introduced uh, effectively what I'd call an inclusionary zoning type regime to the city that also bumped up the cost structure a fair bit of working in that city. But, uh, you know, it's a doing the kind of work we do. You have to turn over a lot of rocks to find deals worth doing. And so we're, uh, we're, we're we've got a couple underway in Montreal now that we'll be excited to announce. And we're optimistic to have a few more in the coming years. Well, I got a question about Montreal and, you know, I don't spend tons of time there and I've never done any business there, but, is, uh, I mean, from a Toronto perspective, one of the reasons why the housing market has done so well is purely based on immigration. And, you know, we have, we have I think, I think it's about somewhere in the market of 400,000 immigrants a year to Canada, of which 150 approximately end up in the GTA. Is, uh, is Montreal seeing the same sort of immigration numbers or is there, I mean, number one, the obvious one is the language barrier. Uh, in terms of moving there, if you're coming, you know, if you don't know English, that's one thing. French is probably a more foreign language. But what is holding back the Montreal market uh, as far as prices go? And uh, or or is it, or is it sort of like you're saying, is it taking off and starting to, to really take on a life of its own? You mentioned eighty dollars a foot historically, and no no taxes and no levies. Where is it at today, and where do you see it's going? Well, the high watermark in the core in Montreal is well north of 200 bucks a foot now for land. Wow. Uh, yeah, so the uh, um, I would say the the most recent big launch in the core is certainly north of 1500 a foot that they're uh, that they're looking to hit there. So uh, not much has been holding back the market. Uh, I would say for some time, um, Montreal does have a different immigration profile than Toronto, both in or I should say the GTA, you know, it is uh, in terms of quantum smaller, but it's also a smaller population market. So on percentage, I'm not sure how they quite stack out against each other. It gets some different sources of immigration too. It's, it's an interesting thing. Like you in 2012 in Montreal, all you heard was people, people speaking Quebecois French. And now particularly in certain areas of the city, you hear, it feels sometimes, I don't think statistically this is true, but it feels like half the time you hear people speaking Parisian French really? because it's become a real, yeah, huge immigration numbers from France to Quebec and lots of like young professionals who prefer the quality of life. You know, like if you're a, if you're a 31 year old software developer you know, you move from you move from most places in France to Quebec, and uh, you know you're living a nice lifestyle in Montreal on the kind of salaries you'll make with a, a good professional job. So, lots of those people, you know, definitely gets immigration from just French-speaking countries around the world. You know, also Quebec's a, Quebec is a big province, and there's lots of immigration from you know the thousands of small towns and smaller cities across the province of people coming into Montreal. It has Montreal for a city of its size has hundreds of thousands of university students in the city. Like there's two huge French schools, 
two very big English schools. Um, it's, it has a lot of uh, a huge student population as well. I love hearing that about the Parisians moving to, to, uh, to Montreal. I grew up in French immersion. This is just sort of a, a side story. And in third year university, I wanted to go on exchange and I missed the cutoff to go to uh, Australia for, you know, my, uh, my university exchange so I ended up in, in Paris for six months. And it was an unbelievable experience that I spoke a lot of Montreal French, which is a disgusting language to the Parisian. <laughs> so now to hear that it's sort of being uh, transversed back into Montreal is a great thing. And I think that, you know, listen, Montreal is an unbelievable city. And to hear that it's growing and it's attracting uh, immigrants from Europe and Paris in particular, that, that's great news. It's good for the country. That's not just all focused on Toronto, Vancouver in particular. So, I mean, but those numbers, 200 bucks a foot for land and 1500 bucks a foot, a foot on the prices. I mean, you're, you're, you're not. Yeah, that's the good, that's the going rate for, yeah. for a unit in, in downtown Toronto now. Yeah. So oh. yeah, I just recently went to Montreal for my, for my wife's 40th and uh, it just, I just love just walking around. It's all I, all I want to do is just walk around the entire city and go to the cafes. And, uh, and I, I said that we, when I sell my house and the kids are moved out, I just want to rent for a year or two in Montreal and just, uh, just experience it. I, I would have considered buying a condo at 1500 bucks a foot. I won't be able to afford that. To, to be clear, that, that is, that is, I, I would say just, just to be clear, that is, uh, that is definitely not the average price. And, um, you will definitely, it is noticeably cheaper. Uh, it is noticeably cheaper, the condo prices in Montreal than Toronto. Like you can buy in a nice, well-located project. You can still buy a condo under a thousand bucks a foot for yeah. sure. Nice. And I think one of the things that I find remarkable about Toronto, which doesn't hold nearly as true for Montreal is, you know, condos are expensive everywhere in Toronto, yeah. even in you know, what I would describe as marginal locations, you know, you, you're not buying anything for $500 a foot really anywhere in the city. Montreal has, I think, a much steeper gradient of pricing, depending on if you're right in the downtown or in a triple prime neighborhood versus if you're in anything that's not as good location wise, you can still buy condominiums for very affordable numbers. In, in Gary, yeah. we looked at deals in Kingston. We looked at deals in uh, in uh, like Oshawa, Pickering, Niagara, London, KW, and and even those markets, the prices are creeping up. It's it's wild to see uh, where they're going in comparison to like what you're going to get in the core downtown. So if you're paying twelve to fifteen hundred dollars in the core, you're not paying that much less, even in those secondary quote unquote secondary markets. So. It's a good point. We do. We definitely don't have anything at five hundred bucks a foot, unless Ben can find us something. Maybe we could go in on it together, buddy. No, no, we're 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 talking fifteen hundred downtown. You're at uh, above a thousand in in Scarborough. Linea was almost eleven hundred. That's a recent launch. Pickering nine seventy five. Viewpoint just launched this week. So we've got uh, we got pricing. Uh, even small units in Hamilton are going for over a thousand bucks a foot now. All right, and that's that's up like 200 bucks a foot this year, right? So it's really unbelievable, unbelievable growth. But uh, getting back to you, uh, Daniel, I saw in Renex that you took on uh, Equiton as a partner in your Ottawa development. Uh, maybe just touch on that real quick, because I know that was just in the news on, on what, what's the kind of breadth and scope of that project. It looks like a pretty big, big one you got there. 
Uh, so we purchased a four plus acre site in Vanier in Ottawa. So this is, uh, if you're in the byword market right in downtown Ottawa, this is for the benefit of those who don't live there or know it super well. If you head east out Rideau Street, uh, you, you hit the river uh, in not too long. And when you cross over the river, we have this four plus acre site right along the river. Wow. So it's a, uh, yeah, we think it's a really great piece of dirt. Um, so we bought that site with a family office, another developer, uh, a couple of years ago and took it through the entitlement process. Um, and it's a strategy we've been using across a number of projects is, you know, we're buying them, we're entitling them, we're getting them close to the start line for construction and then bringing in typically an institutional type partner into the project at construction start. Helps manage our risk, helps spread our balance sheet across a number of projects. It's, uh, I think, getting rid of the entitlement timing risk and just the density risk that comes with the entitlement makes the projects more uh, appealing to certain types of investors to come in at that point. And, uh, you know, these are all pretty big projects. So that's a three-tower, three-phase project. Is just over a thousand units in it. So we're looking to break ground on the first phase, which is 286 units, if memory serves correctly, this summer. Wow. So, and the idea is to uh, to build the project out phase by phase. It's a quick question because we were talking about price points in Ottawa for for this site. So um, I think the rental market out there right now is going to be in the very high twos per square foot yeah. for good quality purpose-built rental. I'd say on a number of our projects, we're definitely aiming for a, I would say, a higher spec building than some of the competition and uh, hope to get a bit of rent premium on it. And then, uh, you know, and then we underwrite some modest rent growth as we move through the uh, the development period as well. Uh, Ottawa is an interesting market. There was, you know, five, six years ago, there was a massive condo boom. Toronto investors were buying up all the units. And then as quick as that happened, the, it, it ended. It was over. And <laughs> and uh, there was, you know, obviously some closing issues. And a lot of developers took their their projects that they had bought and, and, uh, and scheduled for a condo and made them rental. But despite the fact that, that the economy is really good, the condo market hasn't seemed to, to come back. So there really seems to be a, uh, a real need for rental product because the, the individual investor renting units out is just seems to be non-existent in that market right now. Yeah, it's an interesting piece. You know, it did have a, uh, a short window of salad days for the condo guys. Uh, and I think one of the things that happened was the, the market went sideways for long enough. It didn't, didn't go down in a, uh, in a very meaningful way. At least you'd probably know the data better than I do, Ben. But my impression of it was the thing just went sideways for a number of years. And I think that more than anything, it kind of it sort of broke the investor psychology around buying pre-construction condos. You know, it's yeah. one of these things of, uh, you know, if you were thinking about doing it and you went out for a dinner party with three other couples and mentioned you were looking to buying a pre-con condo, you know, two of the other people could tell you a story about how they bought a unit six years ago that's worth, you know, pretty similar number to what they paid for it. And so, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a virtuous cycle to when the market's going up in terms of the investor psychology. And 
you know, there's a, uh, you can end up with a negative dynamic if the market doesn't move well enough for you. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, the resale market in Ottawa for condo has been absolutely on fire. And um, I don't know what the precise stats on it are for the last year, but knowing just some stuff that I've looked at, you know, you've definitely seen some types of units and some projects click up easily well over $100 a foot in the last year alone. Wow. So, you know, so it's kind of an interesting one where you could, as a developer, look in locations in Ottawa and plug something that's not too dissimilar from today's price for a resale unit into your pro forma and potentially get the math to work. The harder question to answer as a developer, if your project has much scale to it, is how long is it going to take me to sell 250 units in the project? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you get into one of those situations where, you know, if that's going to take you more than six or nine months, you're running into uh, your construction cost risk issues. You're running into just the cost of carrying the sales program, you know, just economic conditions change on you, all those things. It's, uh, you know, bearing the risk of being in the market for two years to hit your hurdle is, uh, is a hard thing to, to deal with. So I always thought yeah, that sure. the condo market may have been a result of sort of some of the, you know, you have a lot of government employees who come and go and the idea of settling maybe for a long time or being an investor long-term, you know, maybe that had something to do with it, but you know, it seems like there was a bit, you know, the market goes sideways. There's no advantage of buying reconstruction units and sort of the market gets spooked. It sounds like that's what's happened. And therefore the, the rental market just went nuts from what I heard anyways. And the, the rental prices were strong. I mean, at 275 a foot, I mean, that, that's a healthy number, but let's, let's transition uh, just quickly back to, to Toronto for a second, because after all, this is Toronto under construction. Under construction. <laughs> And a ben podcast gets, about everything Toronto real estate. Ben gets Ben gets a little uncomfortable if we talk about anything outside of Toronto for too long. Um, <laughs> sold a couple sites um, to Trinity and Timber Creek, and uh, we were just wondering what was the motivation behind that sale instead of say building those projects out yourself. So we had, uh, I'll maybe roll that back to 2013 when I joined Main to Main. Uh, at that point in time, they'd already put together a nice little portfolio. And um, we had been doing lots of land assembly in, in Toronto. Uh, the majority of our sites were assembled from multiple properties. And I think that we had uh, the whole way through, there was an expectation that the business plan would involve building some stuff out, selling other stuff off. Um, you know, ultimately the decision to shift a big chunk of the portfolio happened at the board level. And uh, I think there were a number of motivations to look to move it. We did not sell the whole portfolio. Uh, so we kept uh, a big site up at uh, Young and Eglinton that was subsequently sold. Uh, we kept a uh, building out of the Kipling subway station, which we uh, were currently leasing up right now. We kept the mountain equipment co-op site on King Street as well. So we, we kept some of the bigger projects uh, that we had on the portfolio as well. I think we had had, uh, you know, we had built on downtown Toronto on King Street. Yep. Okay. I thought that was Plaza. Are you partners with Plaza there? Yeah. So Main and Main, First Capital and Plaza are all partners in that project. 
That's great. It's a great site. I drove by it on the weekend. And we did, we discussed it when we had Scott on the uh, Scott McClellan on the show uh, last year. So I'm not going downtown obviously as much as I used to, but I just sort of drove through that little node and was going through the back streets and up Charlotte across Adelaide. My wife had to pick something up on Queen Street, and there's just if there's anything better than a AAA site, that's it. It really is. Like we can't beat that location. I was I was just reminded of how great it was what's the plan there are you going for are you approved or we're uh, we're doing abatement in the building now it'll be coming down uh any week now and uh building it out nice wow. nice and, and you have a big retail tenant there did i did i read that correctly there's a fair bit of retail in the project uh but we don't have uh, we don't have a tenant in it now. okay okay gotcha gotcha power again remind us how many it's uh 660 odd units Wow. So let's, let's get, let's get, um, you know, we did uh, interrupt you a bit there, but uh, recently completed station place. You've got uh, a grocery store at the, uh, at grade there. Tell us a bit about that project. How's leasing going? I know you started leasing late last year. Yeah. So we have, uh, so that is a 333 unit uh, purpose-built rental tower that sits a, a literal stone's throw from the doors to the Kipling Mobility Hub, which has the, it's the last line on the Bloor line heading west on the subway. It has the GO station, and it also has the My Way Hub. So this is the Mississauga bus terminal hub. Hmm. So that's a site that we assembled going back. I'm going to say we started out on that one in... 13, I believe. Uh, and then we completed assembly of the site in 2016. In the spring, we started construction on it uh, just at the end of 2016. Uh, we have a pretty big three-level retail podium. The site has a fair bit of grade difference between the front and the back. So there's street-level retail facing Dundas Street. There's also ground-level retail that faces the subway out of the rear of it. We have a uh, 26,000 square foot farm boy on the second floor of that project if you're coming from Dundas or the third floor if you're coming from the rear, which is fabulous. We think they're a great tenant, great operator. And uh, we've got some uh, very exciting other leasing that's happening in the rest of the retail podium that were, uh, that were not announced on yet. So we started leasing that one uh, near the end of May of last year. And uh, I think the it's going well. We particularly the pace picked up like sort of latter half of the fall. We have um, I think and I think you can lay our leasing velocity over the uh, you know your rental market reports about vacancy Ben and uh, you know see if it's not a one to one correlation. It's it's pretty darn close. So um, so the building's doing well as the market's tightened up. In particular, the leasing is picking up. I mean, pre-pandemic, I would have expected that we would have leased the whole thing up in six months or less. You know, we didn't underwrite the project that way, so we don't we don't need to lease it up that fast. So I'd say that uh, lease up rate on new purpose build in the uh, in the COVID era has certainly taken it on the teeth. Like from what I can see. You know, if you owned a stabilized purpose-built rental building, you know, your vacancy crept up a little bit and, uh, you know, maybe you had to give away some incentives to release, that kind of thing. But, you know, overall, the cash flow hit wasn't much. 
it seems that most of the buildings in lease up went from, you know, you could do 40 units a month and lots of them went down to, you could do 10 units a month, that kind of thing. So big shift in the leasing velocity, but, um, you know, fortunately, the the returns on the project are stellar, and uh, even the slower lease up period, I think, is ultimately going to end up uh, well exceeding underwriting on the project. So we're uh, we're very happy with it, and I'd say our investment thesis when we bought the site, and it continues to this day, is that you know when you stand at that particular location outside the Kipling station, it's sort of like standing on Young North of the four hundred one, like let's say Young and Steels in 1997 kind of thing like the amount of change they're going to be when you if you stand on that corner in 15 years from now it's going to be like being up in north york with just towers all over the place and so and our site is literally the most proximate to the subway we're adjacent to all kinds of great things so we have uh you know that's a real fantastic generational asset yeah, I've done. I've done enough. I got in steels and uh, Centerpoint Mall was where I had my first job. I was, I was sold shoes at Athletes World. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I saw the development application and to tear down Centerpoint Mall, and right behind it was uh, the high school Noonbrook, where my sisters went, and I didn't end up going. But yeah, you're right. Like you, could, you should, I think it's um, I don't know, like two or three million square feet they proposed at Centerpoint Mall at Young Steels. It's it's dense. That's for sure. I didn't know much about that, but can I ask a question shifting gears a little bit here because you're talking about uh, a site surrounded by transit and something everybody's talking about is inclusionary zoning. Um, and we're expecting it, uh, I think it's September of this year. And we're noticing a rush of applications being submitted to avoid the affordability requirements. Do you expect development in areas such as yours to be affected by the inclusionary zoning and slow down the pace or do you expect because you know you have a 15-year time horizon or 15-year view for it not to have such a significant impact well i mean i think you know being that we're built so we we also i should add we uh, we bought the site across the street the uh, the dundas grill site and uh, so we have a uh, rezoning site plan application in for that one so we we do intend on building another tower across the street we uh i believe should be exempt from any inclusionary zoning requirements over there um you know it'll be interesting to see i mean one thing unequivocally which is that if i plug in uh even a fraction of the inclusionary zoning bylaw requirements into any of the models that we're doing uh as purpose-built rental developers uh things fall apart very quickly Deals were deals were on the deals have been on the edge for a while. It's very, I mean, we underwrite dozens and dozens of deals a year. And I would say these days, if we buy one or two a year, we think we've got the pace just about right. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I think there's uh in the fullness of time, you know, there's a there is a pretty big inventory of entitled sites around the city and that will uh that will be exempt from the requirement. And those will you know, find their way into the hands of developers over time. And then I think one of two things will happen. I think if you if you talk to the city, their version of it is land is just going to price down to absorb the cost of doing so. And I think if you talk to most people who work in the business, they'll tell you that Toronto landholders tend to be patient folks and uh, tend to only be willing to come off the sidelines for numbers that 
you know, set a high watermark for where they are. So I think a more plausible scenario for everyone else is that development will slow to a point where the supply demand balance pushes revenue up on the projects to a point where they can absorb the inclusionary zoning requirements. You made a good point about the different viewpoints between the city and the, I guess it's the broker community in particular, who deals with the vendors or the landowners and this notion that Toronto landowners are going to come off their price just because the city has implemented a new policy is absolutely ludicrous as far as I'm concerned. Anybody who has a differing opinion probably hasn't read many books. So there's economic theory, then there's the reality, right? You just, any developer that goes to a vendor and says, okay, I got inclusionary zoning, so go ahead and knock 15% off your price and let's, hand, let's, let's shake hands. Then, you know, that's just not what happens, right? So anyways, let's, let's, let's move on. We've talked way too much about inclusionary zoning on this podcast and I'm, I'm getting a little tired of it. I want to talk more. I want to talk more about luxury real estate, luxury real estate. You've got a site with Plaza and Woodburn, St. Clair and Avenue Road. What's going on there? Luxury real estate? Are you going condo there? Are you going rental? What's what's the deal? This thing is a this thing is massive. It's got a lot of density. It's got the neighbors getting a little uh, a little uh, a little angry. You know, they're looking out their their backyards. They're worried about their privacy. Give us the uh, the one two on this one. Uh, so that's a site that uh, we bought with Plaza Partners and Woodborne. So Plaza Partners had assembled the site and were looking to sell it a few years ago. We know Plaza Partners very well. Um, we put together a deal with them in Woodbourne to build it. I, I think going into the thing, we were looking at building it as purpose-built rental. You know, I think the condo market up in that node is doing pretty strong. So whether or not we can, whether or not we can get it to pencil as rental, given where construction costs are and given where revenue on the condo side looks like it's going, will remain to be seen. I think our goal is really uh, once we have the entitlements uh, firmly locked in, then we'll make a decision about uh, how we want to proceed with the project. So we've been working through a series of working group meetings. I think we're, uh, we've made good progress on it. Whether or not we'll get to the finish line or not remains to be seen. So it's a, uh, it's a, a fairly typical uh, developer neighbor dynamic overall. <laughs> We, yeah. I love, I love. That's a very political answer. We, we, you can't say things bad, but we, we'll, Steve and I, we like to talk about NIMBYs and uh, their, um, you know, what, what do you want to call it, Steve? Their unrealistic views oh, on saw, how the how the world should work. I saw Frank Margani going after Margaret Atwood on Twitter on the weekend, <laughs> and I, I sort of like out of context, and I didn't see the full thread, but. His comment was like, oh, this is great. You're going to live in your house forever. Nothing's going to change in your neighborhood. And you just, get, you know, you attack all these rich people when you live in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the city and don't allow anything to happen within, you know, a 10,000 kilometer radius of your house. It's just like, again, going back to like, what's ludicrous? NIMBYs. Well, the, uh, I can tell you the, uh, the absolute worst dust up I've ever had with NIMBYs was actually, I used to, uh, I used to live near Margaret Atwood in Toronto and, um, they, uh, the city built a, uh, a homeless shelter, uh, nearby. So, uh, -oh. uh on, on Davenport road we, and, we um, right next door, we know all about it. So I organized with some of my neighbors and we, uh, we wrote some letters in support of it and came out to the meeting in support of it. And, um, 
you know, I'd say that, you know, overall, you know, from certainly one standpoint, I wasn't super thrilled about having a homeless shelter near me. But on the other hand, they, they have to go somewhere. And uh, this seemed as, uh, as good a location as any. And that was, I would say, the uh, anyway, that was the biggest dust up I've ever had. And uh, there were a lot of very heated, heated discussions amongst people who lived around there. And it's, it's certainly a much different dynamic when you're in there just as a neighbor dealing with other neighbors. It's a very interesting political process, let's say. Kudos to the city and the councillor for, uh, for pushing it through. And long story short, you're back in Montreal. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I kicked you out. <laughs> well, you know, in fairness, in fairness, so they put it in when, you know, a decent chunk of time before I was selling my house. And uh, I think like all issues related to uh, urban stuff, the fear of the change is always way worse than the actual change. So I would say I don't I don't actually think it impacted selling my house in Toronto one bit, but uh, arguably as a prospective seller, I should have been even more hostile to the fact that they were going to build one. But uh, anyway, as I said, I think, you know, lots of people came out and are like, what about the children, that kind of thing? And I'm like, well, I don't know. What about what about if your kid gets schizophrenia when they're a young adult and ends up on the street? You know, they need somewhere to live. So and kudos for you for saying that. I don't think there's enough people in the city who will take that approach. And I think that everybody, you know, you look at, every, you know, homeless people as like lepers in some ways and, you know, they're, they're humans too, and they need to be treated with dignity. And oftentimes we get so caught up in our lives and our selfishness of, of our beautiful things that we forget about that. So to take on your neighbors and to do that, I commend you for that, for sure. We spent a lot of time, you know, trying to help the homeless population and it's a difficult problem. And it's, it's something that, I don't know what the solution is, and but we're all in housing, and it, I think we we as a community have a responsibility to uh, to try and solve that problem, whether it be more affordable or low income housing or shelters in your neighborhood. You know, yeah, I, I think one of the other issues that doesn't get talked about enough is homelessness has a lot to do with mental illness and it has a lot to do with addiction, not necessarily housing, right? So we have to, you know, spend the money on those things to get people uh, off of, you know, opioid addictions and, and, uh, and alcohol and drugs and, and, and everything else. And, uh, and there's just mental health. There's, you know, we need to get these people the, the help that they, that they need. So anyway, so, uh, with that, with that, uh, let's, 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 yeah, I was going to ask another question about luxury real estate, but now that seems, uh, that, that's a, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to, you don't want to segue from one. Yeah, to the that other. seems uh, inappropriate. So let's, you're a finance guy and, you know, there's some changes coming economically, likely, you know, we talk a lot about inflation. We talk a lot about interest rates. Um, but with fears of interest rate hikes, do you expect the industry to slow down to adjust to the new economic climate? Uh, you know, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, as I always say around the office, if I knew exactly where interest rates were going, I'd be a bond trader, not a real estate developer, because you can make a lot more money sitting at a Bloomberg terminal. And uh, they don't get a lot of NIMBYs coming out to deal with them when they're uh, when they're trading T-bills. So, uh, you know, where, where things will ultimately end up going is, uh, I think, in my view, always always an uncertainty. I mean, if you look at the yield curve, there's certainly some rate increases, but not. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as worrying as if you read too many news headlines about inflation. I think there's a. Um, I think there's a few. I think you can think about the number of scenarios 
you know, maybe think about it in quadrants because there's an inflationary scenario where there's lots of income growth and a really robust economy where, you know, you're going to see a lot of top line growth in the assets themselves uh, that will ultimately just, you know, produce more income for them and also help to keep cap rates lower even as interest rates rise, right? Because the cap rates, the rate of return minus the growth rate. So if the growth rate's really high, even if the rate of return is pretty high, you know, cap rates can stay fairly contained. And there's, uh, you know, if you Google them, there's lots of interesting charts of cap rates modeled out against uh, against interest rates over time. You know, I think a, I think a scenario in which there's uh, big spikes in interest rates and a stagnating economy where you're not seeing income growth. And I think particularly as a purpose-built rental developer, we're looking at income growth within some specific segments of the population. You know, there's definitely a band of upper middle class Canadians who are a typical type of tenant for a new purpose built rental. So if those people get very strong wage increases over time, you know, it could all offset itself. And then there's obviously two other quadrants to the, to the square. And those other two would both be relatively contained interest rate growth. And those would be certainly easier to deal with. So I mean, I got to ask you because you you seem like you're you're well read and you've thought about this. My prediction at the end of last year, if you go back and listen to one of the podcasts from October, I think I predicted two rate hikes, one in Q1 and one in Q3. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be right, but they are speaking of even almost up to 200 basis points increase in. The prime rate. What's your prediction? If you had to, uh, I know you're not a bond trader, but what, what's your prediction on uh, the BOC for the next, uh, I guess, eleven months? I think uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to stick with your your assumption and two two rate increases. Yeah, two quarter points. Uh, yeah, two quarter points. That's what I think. I think they're not going to do anything too crazy. But uh, if you look at suburban real house price growth this year. <laughs> that's pretty bananas. So I was just, I was, I even tweeted out about it. I, you know, my job is becoming so much more difficult with the, the rate of price growth in the, the condo market, but especially the low rise market. Like I was trying to value a site in, uh, in Whitby, a uh, single family project in, in, in Q1, the average price for a single detached in Whitby was 910,000 and Q4 was 1.32 million. <laughs> <laughs> so it's becoming really difficult and uh and again this i mean the sample size gets super small because there's almost nothing for sale in the marketplace and uh and it just makes me worry because of you know 2017 and the, how quickly prices went up quick prices went up in 2017 in the low-rise market like 47 48 percent and then ended up with all these these homes that uh that uh, couldn't close or the purchasers had to come back with uh you know and and uh and uh put more equity into the deal did you have any issues with any of your construction loans steve in in uh, coming out of 2017 yeah, there, was, there was a lot and i guess i'll even ask you know both of you a thought for both of you but you know in 2018 we saw a little bit of a correction and it wasn't a correction as much as it was just sort of like a, a plateau and evening out but um, do you guys foresee that happening? I mean, do you see a 2022 sort of plateau evening out, stall, sideways prices, 
uh, any, you know, sort of go back to the eight, what happened in 18 when, the, when, cause there was lineups at sales centers in Whitby for two days where people brought their sleeping bags to buy pre-construction single family homes on a 40 foot lot with a nice little backyard. And then when it came time to close, the house was worth 15% less than what they paid for. Yeah, we, we saw it. I didn't, we didn't get affected by it, but we definitely were aware of what was going on. Yeah. Uh, do, do you guys, do you see that Ben or, or Daniel happening again? I mean, I, I can share one thought. So in 17, when prices ran up, like I think it was particularly the fall of 17 where things just went nuts, right? One thing I definitely saw happening there uh, was as the prices ran up, they hit a place where for a lot of, a lot of sellers who had been on the fence for a long time, the house prices in particular, like in the city, just hit a place where they were like, okay, that that's hit my bid. I'm going to sell my house now. So it's kind of like every person who is like, ah, oh, maybe I'll go move to my country house or, you know, maybe I'll downsize into a condo. Like a lot of people got pulled off the sidelines and it actually brought some supply onto the market, right. As the demand softened out. I don't know if that's the, if that's the case next year, if there are a pool of hesitant sellers who are going to get pulled off the market. And certainly they've all been compromised by the fact that if they want to move to Bracebridge or somewhere like that, those prices have exploded as well. So any kind of trade down, whether it's a trade down into a condo or a trade down into a cottage, the math has gotten worse on it effectively. And then the one other piece I'd add is it's kind of an interesting thing about markets is when the supply gets really thin in a market with enough volume in it, the price is a reflection of the average buyer and the average seller. Like in a market that's selling yeah. 1,500 houses a month, the average buyer and the average seller set the price. When the market grinds down and there's no supply and very few transactions, what ends up happening is the market gets set by the most optimistic buyer, let's say. And so one of the weird things is like volatility as volume comes down in a market below a certain threshold, I would argue kind of the efficiency of the market mechanism and finding the right price also starts to break down. Mm -hmm. No doubt. And, and that's why when people say that supply has nothing to do with what's happening now, it's all investors. I always point to the fact that supply leads to these types of bubble conditions because we get to the point where people are making irrational choices because there is nothing to buy. And when there was, when there's more stuff to buy, then they're not going to make as rational decisions in terms of, uh, in terms of what they're going to, going to buy. So, um, so maybe that's a good transition into kind of supply and demand. And a recent report was put out, I think, by Ryerson graduate students talking about, you know, the loss of, of housing supply and loss of affordability by uh, because of, you know, the uh, angular planes. And, and I want to read a quote. I used to do an article in Building Magazine. Daniel and I had uh, reached out to you for a quote. So I'm going to read you your quote that you, you, that you uh -oh. gave me for the report. It says, <laughs> It says a high rise will typically have well over 80% of the floor area of a building as units with the remainder being corridors, stairwells, etc. A mid rise building that conforms to the guidelines on a typical Avenue site is probably somewhere in the seventies. When only 75% of your building generates revenue, it makes the economics very hard to work. Every unit needs to carry a much bigger allocation for these common areas, further eroding affordability. 
If it not only makes the buildings unwieldy from an economic perspective, it's also extremely wasteful. Do we really want to be mandating buildings where 25% or more of the cement, steel, GHG are wasted on building corridors and stairwells? Has anything you know changed in your mind in terms of in terms of this? And do you do you still think that uh, you know mid-rise guidelines uh, are you know a lack of a better word terrible for the environment and for affordability? First of all, do you remember that quote? <laughs> usually, usually when people quote me back to me, it's much worse than that. So I, I am feeling like I dodged a bit of a like I dodged a bit of a bullet on this one. You could have found uh, more. Yeah, you could have found more incriminating quotes than that one, but uh, no, I think uh, I think that I think that general dynamic one hundred percent still holds true. I'd, I'd add a couple things that um, we've particularly seen happen uh, since I think since you pulled that quote, they were starting to emerge at that time. One of them is that um, trade availability is particularly hard on mid-rise buildings, so. You know, in a looser construction market where you had decent trade availability, you could get good quality, larger subcontractors to bid these projects. Basically, as the as the trades got busier, if you offer the trade the opportunity between working on a mid-rise project and working on a high-rise project, they're going to take the high-rise every time. And so now attracting quality trades to one of these projects has gotten substantially more difficult. So I think, uh, you know, I don't have an Altus report to point to, but I think certainly if you're out there trying to build a, you know, 80 or 90 unit project, you're going to find that in some particular key trades, getting a very high quality trade to the site, the only way you can do it is by just paying them, uh, an even more outrageous number than you'd pay to do a high-rise building. You know, I think the general concept is, uh, I think the general concept of intensifying the avenues is sort of a, a, a dubious one to start with, to be frank, in terms of how to manage growth in the city as well. And uh, I think even, I will say one thing, which is I think that if you if you scrap some of the angular plane requirements, and allow a more regularized building form in these areas, I think you, I think it's still going to be very hard to deliver. Um, I think mid-rise will continue to be what I would call more of a luxury product. I think the cost structure of, I think the cost structure of doing it is going to be outrageous, even if you simplify the massing somewhat. The problem, yeah. the problem too, and I, and I tend to, to, to agree with you is, the margin for error on a 90,000 square foot building is so slim and you have one mistake, oh, one, one trade, one accident, one act of God, one anything really. And your profit is basically eroded in, in a split second. So unless you're selling for 2,700 bucks a foot or 2,400 bucks a foot opposed to 1,200 bucks a foot, you know, with a huge buffer and contingency for downside I don't really know how you make these these work. There's the odd guy who's doing it and, and doing it well, but for the most part, I have a challenge. I, I'm challenged with them. Yeah. Six, successfully delivering a mid-rise product is 
way harder. It's like the triple twist backflip of real estate <laughs> development. It is, I think you're very right, Stephen, that there are, when you're doing mid-rise, kind of like anything could be a headshot, like an environmental problem, a you know problem with road occupancy. Like there are just a million things that will tip you over the edge on it. And on high-rise projects, like you certainly, you know, you need to know what you're doing and not make mistakes, but the number of mistakes you can make that will turn the project upside down are much smaller. And I think that perhaps one way of thinking about real estate development projects that people who aren't in the business don't understand is let's say you're doing a hundred million dollar project roughly. And I think uh, the Altus report has the average developer margin where around 13, 14%. Yeah. That we had, uh, we got Finnegan Marshall on and, and he was saying, yeah, it's 12, 12, was it 12 to 14? He said most of his clients. Yeah. Okay. So let's say, so a hundred million dollar project has 80, 86 to $88 million in costs. And you have 12 to 14 million in profit on a hundred million dollar project. If you approach decisions through the development process and costs as a function of $100 million, well, your, your life's pretty easy. It's, uh, okay, there's $700,000 in right-of-way upgrades the city wants from you. There's, uh, you know, uh, your insurance costs just went up by $400,000, you know, and you can, if you look at it against $100 million, it's no big deal. If you look at it against the, the $12 million, all of a sudden, the numbers start, you add three, $4 million up, your profits come down to a point where the project is unfinanceable and you're dead in the water. You're done. You're totally so, done. I totally agree. It's uh, a $500,000 environmental problem on a king and uh, on the mech site is, is honestly a rounding error that no one will notice. But if you have a small infall site of 65 units, you know, it can mean the difference between getting bank financing and having to pay 12%. And all of a sudden, 12% financing ruins the deal. So you're absolutely right. I was just going to say, Steve, do you, have your, do you have your regular loans that you give to clients, but then you have the loan to own for the bad deals? So you can give them the, uh, give them the 17% interest rate on their deal or what? Well, is, that, is that the next product for Cameron no, Stevens? No, no, no. <laughs> Cameron Stevens is a, uh, it's definitely, we take the partnership approach and we want to lend to uh, good projects with good people. We're not in the business of loaning to own. Uh, it's not our thing. <laughs> we're, 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 uh, we're much more conservative than that. And, uh, you know, our, our goal is to put the capital out, get it back, and then hopefully lend it to the same people again and, and build a good relationship so I, i'm not i'm not interested in that personally um but i gotta ask before we get into the rapid fire um there was some personal stuff that uh, someone told me that i should ask you about you have three kids and uh and you have a, a passion for cars is that is that true uh, i do although the three kids have uh substantially gotten in the way of uh of my other uh my other passion so uh <laughs> that that one's on ice for a few years you know the problem is too is once my kids get a little bit older and i have time for it they'll be getting close to the age where they want to you know borrow the keys yeah so uh yes i think uh i don't know there may be a minivan in my not too distant future steve so uh how are you I have a nine-month-old, a four-year-old, and a five-year-old. Oh, you're busy. Wow, man. wow. Well, I, my Steve, Steve, my minivan is coming in March. 
Uh, eight months, eight months after I bought it. So I'm going to be showing up at your house in a, in a minivan and you can come in and sit in the back. It's got reclinable seats in the back. So you will enjoy that. <laughs> and Dan, what's, your, what's your car? What's your favorite car? What's your favorite collectible? Do you have any left or did you get rid of them? Um, no, I, I don't own one, but I spend a degenerate amount of time on bring a trailer looking at, uh, Pagoda SLs. These are the Mercedes convertibles from the, uh, like late sixties. Okay. And, uh, I have, uh, I have a, a number of friends who purchased, uh, you know, some of the very quick modern cars and they're, uh, you know, they're, it's wild how fast they've become. And, uh, you know, if you're not interested in doing, you know, 250 kilometers an hour, they're sort of, uh, there's not much you can do with them. So I'm getting more vintage as time goes by. Nice. Oh, Montreal, nice. needs, Montreal needs a, uh, Montreal needs to take, to take, to adapt the, uh, the Autobahn, no speed limit highways, just become pure Euro, you know, like, I mean, the more European, <laughs> European traits, Montreal or Quebec can adapt, adopt it. Uh, it's better for the province. Well, I will give a plug out for uh, Tromblon. They have a racetrack up there, and if you're uh, if you're into cars and engine driving fast, uh, the track days up at Tromblon it's an amazing amazing circuit. All kinds of elevation change, some some fast bits, some tight bits. It'll uh, it'll uh, it'll keep you entertained. Well, maybe maybe Ben and I are take take the show on the road. Yeah, I'll sit in the back seat. <laughs> all right let's uh let's take it uh let's let's finish this off with a little rapid fire we got 10 questions you know try and keep it you're you're an avid listener i don't know if you ever make it to the end of the show to know that there's a rapid fire i'm always worried that people turn it off like three quarters of the way through and they miss the best uh the best part of the show Maybe, i was thinking we should start the show with the rapid fire yeah no no it has to end it off we have to save the best for last but the, should the record show that we were originally scheduled in September and I think we, and you missed a flight or a flight got canceled on you and you couldn't make it. So some of these questions might be relevant to September of 2020 or 2021. <laughs> I forget what year it is. So it's 2022. Well, so not, not much has happened in the world. Since then, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Steve, so rapid questions. You're st- we're going to just bang them at you. could be yes or no. could be uh, one sentence, could be a couple words. So uh, let's, let's, let's start us off. Will banning foreign buyers do anything for affordability in this country? No. Are you opposed to large institutional companies buying up single family homes for rental purposes? No. That's good. Do you think that the, that there will be ever be a point where we're building more rental buildings than condo buildings in Toronto? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, forever is a long time. And uh, <laughs> if you say no, you're, uh, I, you know, in the fullness of time, sure, I could see it happening. How worried are you about affordability as a result of increasing construction costs on a scale of one to 10? I think your, your scale is, your scale's wrong. It's, you know, one to, uh, one to a million. Um, so, uh, yeah, in terms of, uh, if you're a developer, I think this is the, this is the number one issue in the business. And, uh, we've got some, uh, we've got some ideas on how to deal with it for our portfolio, but overall it's, uh, it's a huge issue. 
I know that you 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 said you you're compared you know the uh, six points area of Etobicoke to where North York was before, but now I'm going to bring it down to another question: Is Scarborough the next Etobicoke? That's a that's a good question. I mean, Scarborough Town Center is a uh, one of the uh, growth areas, right? So that's theoretically an area of the city that could build out like that. Um, I'll say this. I, I found the last uh, year and a half, two years to be humbling in terms of the degree to which there's been convergence between, I'll call them, outlying areas of the city and more prime real estate. No like doubt. if you could, if you, if you could pair trade real estate the way you do stocks, I would short everything peripheral and long the core. Cause to me, the, the premium has gotten too narrow. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like I was doing, uh, you know, market studies at this point in time last year, you know, recommending 830 bucks a foot for Scarborough. Right. And now I'm recommending 1,030. <laughs> 1050 bucks a foot for for Scarborough development sites or or higher right so just shocking really i mean there's no other way that that i can i feel bad for for people that are reading my reports from february of 2021 and uh making any decisions on them so anyways okay here's a, here's a question we sort of touched on it but this is going to be uh very telling what is a cooler and i say cooler not as a colder but a more chic city, Toronto or Montreal? Uh, I would say by a, uh, by a landslide, it's Montreal. <laughs> wow. We're, I thought we were pretty cool. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. It's a, um, I'll elaborate on that one a little bit. Toronto is a lovely place to live. I, I love living there. Lots of great people, lots of great stuff going on. The underinvestment in, the just general infrastructure of the city is a makes Toronto, in my view, just a much harder place, an uglier place to live than it needed to be. So, oh, and that. well, if you look, so you go to on every major commercial street in Toronto, they don't bury any of the electrical wires. Everywhere you go, there's poles with you know 70 years of electrical wires and bell phone lines on them that <laughs> like like to me the, the first thing you need to do when you render the first thing you need to do if you want to switch from a rendering of a toronto project to what it will look like in real life is put the nasty hydro poles in front of them <laughs> I, I like then, that, I like if you could do a forensic analysis and you could pull staples off those poles from like 1894. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And they just, you know, they, you know, they would do improvements, you know, like they would put in a new garbage can in the park that I'd take my kids to. And, you know, the thing would get installed like 18 degrees off center and not put into the footing correctly and fall apart. Like they're, <laughs> <laughs> Everything is, you know, the physical infrastructure of Toronto is shabby because it's not maintained. And, you know, the reason for it is not complicated. Like when I moved from Toronto to Montreal, my house cost, you know, 30% less than my house in Toronto did. And my taxes are 60% more. Wow. Like it's just a, you know, it's math. It's not that, uh, it's not that complicated. Is there a sense of uh, a better sense of um, community? 
that's not community, but uh, is there is there more pride of pride of ownership in Montreal versus Toronto? Do do people take a a stake in in the city and the community more than you say they would in Toronto? And and I ask you that only referring going back to my earlier comment about living in Paris. And I I remember uh, walking around the city, and there's a lot of workers cleaning up the streets or cleaning the churches. There's a lot of uh, smog and it stains the old brick or the old uh, whatever materials on the exterior of some of the, the historic buildings. And one of the most, you know, it, it's not a sexy job, but it's held in wide, well, high regard if you're one of the, the people who work for the city and clean the churches or clean the old buildings because you're cleaning up the city, you're doing good for, you know, the people in, uh, of, uh, of your community. Is there any sense of that in Montreal, or is that a very Euro European attitude or Parisian? Well, attitude? they they definitely do stuff like the city sends every year. The city sends a crew down my street and down every street like mine, and they trim the tree canopy. They inspect the trees to make sure they don't have invade. You know that they're not getting killed by some sort of bug. They trim the trees. They take care of them. You know, which is just something that the city, like the city of Toronto, does just does not do that. And you know, a beautiful tree canopy will change the difference. It's it's wild if you look at photos of like the annex when it was built, and it's the streets of those brick homes, but there's no mature trees. There's no uh, there's good pictures of High Park when it was built too, and most of those neighborhoods without the landscaping in look like track subdivisions. Wow, like it makes a huge difference. Right. And then the culture. The culture is very different, you know, um, the culture is very different. You know, Toronto has great, a great sense of community, all of those things, I would say that, um, but I would say that Montrealers definitely have just spend more of their time, you know, hanging out and less of their time working. Me being well, a notable exception to that, but uh, <laughs> well, we, we kind of got off track. We got off track on our, uh, our rapid fire, but I'll, I'll, this will be our last one. And this is a nonverbal response here. So uh, with your facial expression, show us what you think of Josh Matlow. On on an audio only podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Question wise, with your facial expression, show us what you think of Josh Matlow. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I'm going to break your rule and just say it verbally. Uh, you know, one thing that you maybe don't know about Josh Matlow, I used to live in his ward, is that he his counselor's office is uh, extremely responsive to people who live in their neighborhood. A bit like uh, a bit like the Ford uh, Ford as counselor was famous for. Like if if you live in his ward and you email them because there's trash on your street because there's a problem that needs to be fixed they're on it. So maybe something you didn't know about Mallow. He has been a thorn in the side of many of uh, Steve and I's clients for many years and, uh, and uh, makes things uh, more difficult than they need to be um, for someone that's supposed to be working for the residents of the city as a whole. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you this, my, my view on it is that you know, being mad at Josh Matlow for fighting development, it's kind of like being mad at your toddler for, you know, eating too much candy and watching Netflix when you left them with the bag of Smarties and the remote control. Like, it's going <laughs> to happen. The, the mistake 
the mistake occurred when collectively we decided to manage growth by spot upzoning everything and putting a lot of power in the hands of the local constituencies. Like if the province and city and the mayor had organized to actually upzone the city to manage the growth, it would happen all in one shot and you wouldn't have all the neighbors with their hair on fire. Like it's a, I, I think he's more of a symptom than a cause. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Makes sense. Well said. I agree. I agree entirely. It's a, it's a good point. Place to end. One thing I just say, if people want to know about Maine and Maine is just, you know, development. I think like all great businesses is very much a people driven business. And, uh, you know, we're, I think more than anything, very proud of our buildings, but also very proud of the team we put together because we've got a real crew of rock stars in our office who simultaneously take the work very seriously, but don't take themselves very seriously. So we managed to have a lot of fun doing it, but really a great team. Who's your favorite person to work with in your office? Because we're all going to listen. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I love it's it, Stephen. It's been great. Uh, Anything solid. Else, Mario, you want to? You want to? Uh, you want to say? Or uh, what if our listeners want to get in touch with you? Are you okay with that? Can they find you on uh, Bumble or uh, Twitter? <laughs> or, uh, they can find me. Uh, I I stay anon on Twitter, but they uh, they can uh, they can track me down on LinkedIn. Awesome. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, well, we yeah. appreciate you having you on the show and. Uh, uh, I always love talking to you. You always got uh, great stuff to say. So that's why we wanted to have you on the podcast. And uh, and you didn't disappoint. So last word to you, Steve. Thank you. I hate I hate that we're back on Zoom. But kudos to Ben and Daniel. There was not one Teams notification or Outlook email notification. So I think you <laughs> did a great job at uh, distractions and third-party noises to a minimum. Anyways, Daniel, you're, uh, you've been a great guest. Very insightful, very thoughtful, well-spoken. And it sounds like you guys are doing great things at Main and Main. So I will definitely be contacting you guys for uh, some financing. We've got lots of money to deploy. It looks like you guys are going to be (laughs) popular over the next 10 years. So I look forward to to chatting further and hopefully doing some business together. Fantastic. Super appreciated and uh, love the show. I should have started with, uh, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. I've always, uh, <laughs> I've always wanted to use that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, next time you'll be next time, second time uh, guest, uh, long-time listener. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There we All go. Right. Awesome, All guys. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. All right. Take care. All right.